Hey there, you burning angels streaking across the horizon in a glorious ball of fire. This is Tim, and you're listening to Death of a Thousand Cuts. Of course, you probably know that. It's unlikely that you're just sitting, listening to random audio. Today's episode is me chatting to Ross Sutherland. I've been waiting to do this one for so long. It's such a exciting and special episode for me. Ross is a poet, he's a performer, he's a writer, he's a playwright, he is the presenter of the podcast Imaginary Advice. Imaginary Advice is something I'm going to uh, suggest that you listen to immediately after listening to this episode, or indeed before, but I'll put links in the show notes. Um, at the British Podcast Awards this year, he uh, it won Best Fiction Podcast and it's really, really good. I don't think fiction as an umbrella quite does justice to the mix of stories, poetry, autobiography, and just weird, interesting, funny, fascinating, mind-expanding, cool shit that he puts into each episode. It's, we, we get into a little bit about the difficulty of defining it but Ross talks with incredible articulacy about where ideas come from that kind of question you're apparently not allowed to ask authors now because they sneer at you like it's gauche Ross very very accommodatingly talks at length about his process and his ideas about finding the game of a piece he talks about using different restrictions to make your work come alive he talks about the importance of repetition and creating rituals that you can in your writing weird incantations and ways of reappropriating text and uh hacking stuff that already exists in the world amazing fun creative writing games that you can use and he even he I get him to talk about his favorite creative writing exercise it's all stuff that you are going to be able to take from at the end of this you know I just basically go and ask him to break down all this craft and all the time he's spent thinking about why a piece of writing works why is this entertaining what am I trying to do here um, and he breaks all that down and he talks about it in ways that you'll be able to use uh, and he talks about the fascinating and funny and interesting work that he does and I, I just I cannot emphasize enough that you need to go and look him up after this episode go and look at some of Ross Sutherland's YouTube videos listen to the latest episode of imaginary advice i'm putting a link to his podcast because he talks about the episode he's working on in this one and it's just come out so the episode he talks about where we talk to him in the middle of the process and what he's trying to do with the piece the piece is now finished and you can go and listen to it it's the fourth anniversary of his podcast and um you're going to really enjoy it i just i i, I will stake my uh limited and uh oft ambiguous reputation on the fact that 
you will get such a blast out of listening to Ross's work and it's all there for you for you to listen to uh, four years worth so you can kind of binge it if you like it and if you don't like it you will have had an experience unlike any other and you won't regret it even if you bounce off and it's not your kind of thing but it is so many people's thing and the other reason I enjoyed doing this episode with Ross as we talked about you know I'm a performance poetry most of you will know I'm a performance poet I should say I'm not claiming to be all performance poetry that would be an insane boast um but i you know i came up in the stand-up poetry scene that's how i met ross ross is aside from being hugely prodigiously talented uh and having an amazing work ethic uh he is also a really 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 dear friend he was my best man at my wedding and um i love him very very much so it was a real real treat to speak to him to get to talk to him about his work to get to talk shop really uh and but also ask him some (laughs) deeply impertinent and dumb questions because i had a microphone shoved in his face and um I, i i listening back to this chat i really enjoyed listening to it again and and just hearing what Ross had to say. And I'm sure by the end of this episode, you will have fallen in love with him too. So um, without further ado, oh, well, there is there is going to be further ado, just to remind you to please, you know, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or if you listen to us through iTunes or whatever kind of podcatcher you use to listen to this. I've, I've got Podcast Addict on my, uh, on my Android. I never used any kind of like podcast collecting app before, but Podcast Addict is pretty good. I would recommend it if you haven't got anything yet and you're on android um but please subscribe to the podcast it really helps just to because i sometimes keep a slightly erratic uh, uploading schedule and sometimes i add bonus episodes and things like that it's really great to make sure that people can hear it and it just makes the numbers look good which is just purely a, a vanity thing i think no it really helps me um to get it out to people and secondly if you enjoy the show just kind of like uh i've got a, a link to my book i would love it if you got my novel the honors makes a huge difference to me those of you who've written saying that you've been reading it some people messaging me today saying that they're in the process of reading the story that's so thrilling i'll put a link in the show notes it's uh, i think you'll enjoy it and um, i'm a full-time writer so if people don't buy my book i don't eat so um any any time someone's doing that it's just it's, it allows me to continue doing what i love and finally, if you want to support the show and uh, help with the various expenses that putting up a podcast weekly, sometimes twice weekly, and hosting it and hosting my website, all of the costs that that incurs, then I've got a little coffee link uh, that you can click or you can go on my website, tinklerpoet.co.uk, and there's a little button that says buy me a coffee rather presumptuously but you can just click through that and like two clicks you can drop me something via paypal or whatever thank you to all of you who've done that uh, it's just it, it means i can continue doing this so that really is the last you're going to hear from me um except in a couple of seconds where you get an entire 90 minutes of um me and ross chatting animatedly but i do let him get a word in edgeways and he's a a wonderful wonderful geezer um and you can hear the really really inspiring story of how he got started in poetry and the ways he's expanded that and uh, broken out and just made 
culture in the UK a richer and more exciting place to be. I'm certainly really, really enriched by ha having known him, and I've learned such a such a lot from um, being with him on his journey at various stages, and I continue to do so. So I hope you enjoy it. Dear friends, here is Ross Sutherland. Um, but I'll do, yeah, I'll just do I'll just do a little um, I'll just do the, I'll just do the little sort of hyperkinetic uh, like nineteen eighties uh, zoo radio shock jock opening, <laughs> and then and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly this is this is and then and then I'll activate the cartridge with the kind of like sting music. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably literally sting if it was in the late eighties. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing stories and writers and the the people behind the pen crying. Um, so today I'm super duper thrilled and I'm, of course I'm never less than thrilled. I try not to be sort of indifferent and blasé on the show, but I'm particularly excited today because I have with me in my actual house um in the flesh the poet podcaster content creator uh theater maker I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm dropping all these terms as if I'm sort of skeptical and holding them at arm's length <laughs> but genuinely uh, there's a bunch of things uh, Ross Sutherland uh hi Ross how are hi you? How's it going? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. Thanks. It's nice to be in your house. It is nice. To, it's nice. To, thank you. It's uh, you haven't. You might. You I, might not have been in this room since it was. No, I don't know. This does this room exist? No, it existed. It didn't. No, it didn't exist. It was. This was garden, was it? No, this was garden. So we were. We were seeing the and the first podcast interview of the show that I did. I did with Alexander Gunsmith, and that was when this was all cinder blocks. We uh, sat in here when it was still like all bare concrete, and slowly as. <laughs> like grown around the podcast like like you know the stop motion bits in the time machine <laughs> where like he's going through time and like lava forms around it it feels when i'm in here like like i've i've moving very slowly through the seasons um and the writer in front of me keeps changing and now i'm here at yeah. my intended destination yeah decaying in front of you <laughs> yeah, and now yeah. you're left with me the morlock of uh, <laughs> of, of, of your of your interviewees <laughs> that's such a poor quote the, 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 the morlock of a british literary scene Ross um, what are the other ones called the morlocks are the, what, what do they they what the because the, 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 the species bifurcates right what, what are the nice ones what are the ones that are all like hippie kids I can't remember at all. This is terrible. Like all I, I can remember, remember is that ultimately, hum like he sh like, actually shows his lack of understanding of of evolution that eventually, humankind just I think they evolve into just giant crabs. <laughs> Like right, you go into the future and yeah. there's just crab people. And there's just crabs. And it's like I mean, maybe he's not. Maybe he just doesn't give a fuck, right? It's just like, um, there's some giant crabs. Yeah. There's what's the what's the metaphor here? You decide. <laughs> We're always the crabs. That's I I know that from from studying fantasy. The crabs are always us. Yeah, the crabs crabs are a metaphor for human beings. You need to go back and read. Yeah. Um so I'm going to, there's a bunch of things I'd love to talk to you about. And um, I guess 
in a kind of like Romeo and Juliet style, kind of putting the ending at the beginning to create a kind of foreshadowing. I like it. I, I want to get into talking about uh, your amazing podcast, which won uh, British Podcasting Awards uh, Fiction Podcast of the Year. Um, I'm going to talk about imaginary advice and everything you do in that, because especially when I hear people talk about it, it is uniformly with this kind of awe and reverence oh. and praise. But also when they talk about it, they go, I can't, I can't really explain what it is. You just have to go and listen to it. And they're kind of like people who've gone to see the like prophet on the mountain <laughs> And they've come back with a piece of wisdom that is unutterable in the human tongue. And, and that sounds like I'm taking the piss out of your work. But at the same time, it's the reason why when we I started doing that list of like your job titles, um, none of them seemed quite adequate to the totality and the real interestingness and the accessibility of what you do. I guess that's the other thing is when you start bolting job titles on one another, it starts to sound impossibly arcane and uh nebulous and actually I, I think what you do that is so easily grasped on the face of it but what i want to do before we get into all of that sure. is maybe just uh, start at the beginning and just ask you a little bit about where you come from you know like what how you got here and when maybe when you first got the inkling that this kind of like uh, weird kind of like word monkeying mm. was going to be something that you were going to pursue yeah sure i mean i i was so i was born in edinburgh i, I was word monkeying from like quite a young age only because of um uh my gran uh used to write nonsense poetry she was like a big fan of like, nonsense verse and would kind of get us writing it and she'd make like shopping lists rhyme by kind of just like by by making them into like nonsense poems you know so you'd remember them when you kind of go to the shops and stuff and um uh so i you was writing with my gran like really really young uh when my family moved from like scotland to england uh writing poetry was the way that i stayed in touch with my grandparents because nobody likes writing letters to grand i love my grandparents but like still the idea of writing the letter of like dear grandma like thank you for my christmas present it was great you know like here's what i've been up to in school like there was just such a natural are you the same i, I had such natural Ooh. resistance to ever like sitting down and doing that but if my mum said like, as oh you what? Were, as you're a kid when you're a kid like writing you don't really realize like how hard it is oh, to write God. even something quite short just a constructive sentence just yeah, just like yeah, that is just too much, right? I remember like uh, one one in when I was in must be like it was Mrs. Pollock's class. So I think like year, year year one maybe. I remember like I tried to pass off the uh, Aesop's Fable, the Lion, the Peacock, as my own work, <laughs> and I started arduously like copying it out of a book, and that, that I was then going to pass off this master crime. And I got to like the third sentence and I was like, this thing that didn't look very long is, is it took me like all day to do. Yeah, fuck this. And then, and then was immediately, and then I was immediately outed as a, uh, so yeah, it must, oh. it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like, yeah. especially if when there's these bits like, dear, you know, when there's these formal bits that you don't actually have any control over, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you're just it's not your voice. It's not your voice. It's the, who who is this? Who 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 walks into a room and says, Dear grandmother, like that's not me, has nothing to do with who I am. 
Um, but yeah, you know, like when you're just like being able to just like write gibberish. My mum was just like, you know, just write a nonsense poem for her. And you're just like, oh, okay. You know, and, and like, and I think maybe like right from that stage, there's two things that I think one, like poetry therefore becomes like a way of like writing home. It was still like a way of like staying in touch with people, but staying in touch with people through that kind of like, my gibberish is my gibberish and it is coded to me and like no one else can produce gibberish quite that sounded like what I would kind of do and I think that also maybe ended up like bedding deep into my head a little bit on the subject of writing like uh of like of plagiarizing other people's stories i did the same thing with um uh george's marvelous medicine uh when i was wow. like seven uh I, just, <laughs> I changed to ross's marvelous medicine and uh, <laughs> oh, the gentleman theme <laughs> <laughs> just filing off <laughs> filing off the codes and then uh yeah and did uh, it have any, did it have I changed I mean, the ingredients. Oh, well, nice. Okay, that's good. You can argue, actually, that's what I've been doing my entire life. Actually, like all, like all my writing is effectively just taking like, somebody else's story and then just changing the ingredients. Ross is marvelous medicine. Ross is marvelous. Yeah, yeah. I think I had exactly the same. Yeah, but beat for beat. Uh, like I didn't write it out in four. Yeah, yeah. Similarly, I, you know, skip to the end. You know, like <laughs> I kind of started condensing it. But and also, you know, they're not. Not wanting to, not wanting to shame you so early in our chat, but like at least I, kind of like kept my fingerprints off it by keeping it about the lion and the peacock, these two archetypal figures. You stole the story and inserted yourself as the main character. Yeah, why is this story not about? I tell you how I can make this story better. If it was about me, yeah, exactly, exactly. But then it makes it more convincing that you. You're like, this isn't plagiarised. Yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Chinnery. I am telling you, this happened to me. (laughs) It just, life imitating art, quite frankly. You know, like, who are you to say whether or not, who are you to challenge my truth? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I poisoned my grandmother (laughs) with with, with just, like, chemicals from around my house. Exactly. I realised this this looks looks bad on reflection. (laughs) You should maybe have picked a story where it doesn't end in a murder. I guess uh, maybe the grand comes back at the end. No, I don't know. I can't, I can't actually even remember how, how the story ends. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wrote as a kid. And um, uh, and that just kind of continued. It kind of like ticked along. My dad gave me um, a book. He gave me a couple of books when I was like uh, sort of 14. Uh, he gave me... Linton Crazy Johnson's Dread Being Blood, and he gave me John Cooper Clark's uh I'm gonna say ten years in an open neck shirt. I suddenly questioning that that year. Ten years in an open neck shirt. If you Is hadn't it? questioned it, you I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have questioned yeah. it, but now I'm now I'm not sure. But like those books I just like, yeah, that was I because mean, I don't think I I like because of the way I'd started as a writer, I didn't I wasn't really like a huge consumer of poetry. I guess, you know, i yeah, like Maybe if, you know, like Roger McGough and kind of stuff like that. No, there probably was. And like Brian Patton's Gargling with Jelly. And I love the revolting rhymes. I guess, yeah, I probably was reading poetry. But those books were kind of like, kind of blew my mind a little bit. They were kind of great. And I kind of knew them on the page rather than like seeing them live. But then when I was 15, I got to see John Cooper Clark at, um, at the Edinburgh Fringe. I saw him at uh, the Music Box, which I, I think is in, like, was in sort of Grass Market. I don't know mm. if it's, I, th- I presume it's not there now. Um... And because I'd sort of read these poems, but I actually I, I had no idea how they sounded live. And so to see John Cooper Clark on stage, you know, delivering these pieces in this kind of strange. Can you remember any of the ones he 
he did. He did uh, pretty much the same yeah, set that you and I did. probably <laughs> saw last year. Yeah. Uh, um, no, he did. Uh, yeah, he, he he did twat. I remember Love Story in Reverse to to give it its proper title. Uh, and um, he did Chicken Town, and uh, and the audience was full of old punks. That was that was what was so great about it. it felt like that this weird sort of synthesis of you know like of a comedy gig. And a music gig, and I guess I hadn't really been to a poetry recital before, so like I just assumed that that's that was where all poetry recitals met. We're in this kind of like raucous energy of a sort of like aging punks kind of just like you definitely yeah you definitely there's definitely a uh, kind of there's definitely like a survivor vibe of like that mm-hmm. that kind of audience isn't there like people who've been through quite a lot together yeah it's and it and it has its own energy that is that I. I think I sometimes took the piss out of in my head, not to other people, but because actually to try and deal with the feelings it brought up in me, which was like you you see some people who've like been turning up to to stuff for a while and and survived the eighties, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, right. Like considering, like, yeah, like all the backdrop of what was going on and that energy which you put into that which you which you felt when you were 17 you know like and the live scene is what perpetuates it right that's your ritual that's where you go back to sort of like to to re-up on like on that feeling and then over a while the world changes around you you know like but like you that's the place you kind of touch back in yeah those black box spaces are kind of like they're a bit like kind of christmas or like any where you know i often now when i had there's christmas because there's so many elements of it that are identical and the world is shit you it throws the changes into really stark relief yeah, right and, yeah. and and but you and you were kind of you were there like right at the beginning of your kind of like cultural journey uh like seeing that there is this bigger thing going back and that these things that you've had these poems that you've had a personal relationship with is is twat the one that's got like a heart attack at a party you ruin all the fun, yeah. like a Just sucked and spat out, out smarty. smarty. You're no use to anyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a great. It's that's definitely a poem that when I, I think I, I think I read it before I heard it like you and my mum got me, uh, ten years in a open neck shirt and really said you've got to read Johnny Clark and this is before I was doing poetry myself and I resisted slightly because it was my mum <laughs> and then when I read it I was like oh 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 yeah hello yeah. And I like, and I like, and there was something like, I quite liked the fact that, and this is always a way with like cultural references, is that loads of references were like utterly opaque to me. They're like band, like 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 big band stars and like fifties B movie actors and kind of stuff like that. But it has like kind of like that rich sort of texture to it. Um, and I just love the energy. I think that was it. I, I think I saw those things, and then I was just like, I then immediately started ripping him off. So I basically started marvelous medicine. Um, uh, Johnny Clark, and it just turned out that he lived in Colchester. Uh, like uh, I, I presumed he was still in, in in Manchester, but no, he lived just just down the road from where I was and where my family were living now. And my English teacher arranged for him to come and do a a reading at my sixth form college, and awesome. then I got to support him. I got to be like on the bill beforehand and, and read my very obvious John Cooper Clark knockoff poems just before he came on to do the originals. Uh, Can you remember what you were writing about it? That? Yeah, I was right. Yes, I, I was. I was writing about um, uh, boy racers, Tim, because that was boy racer culture was uh, very big in in Essex. So uh, yeah, so I had like a couple of poems 
which were effectively about and i guess it was a world that felt just like utterly like like absurd to me and and, and to like my friends who were all uh pedestrians uh <laughs> uh that like that there, there should be this kind of strange other world and you know because you'd see them all the time like colchester was basically like just a big like South End, I don't know if it was the same for you in kind of in Portishead, whether you had like a circuit that kind of like lads would sort of drive around in a circle and kind of do, or well, car Port- parks where they all sort of like hang out and. Portishead's in a in the Gordana Valley, so and there's lots of these like side roads yeah. that are very small. Yeah. So there was definitely there wasn't like there was lots of rather than there being like big strips that you could get up to speed at yeah. there were lots of narrow uh hillside coastal passes there was one that we had called it was known as uh Dan Crosley uh he he skidded off the road um which is like a was on a coastal on the coastal path in Portishead and um hit a hit a uh, a telephone pole which was the only thing that stopped them going over the edge became known as Crosley Corner people used Crosley to go around Corner. it as fast as they could to try in tribute and uh, Mark Delancey came off and did the same crash taking people of, on a tour of Crosley Crosley Corner it was we, like we, our own did, did Crosley did he was we, he injured no 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 okay, this okay. is the crazy this was the crazy thing about it and this is why some of these people felt slightly like you know like you're like slightly like weird superheroes to me and to us was that people like daryl nutt passed his driving classes it's so funny saying anyone's name from school sounds really it does, funny yeah, doesn't yeah. It? anyone who's known by first name surname as well if you're known by your full name you're all you're you're you're, you're always you you are a celebrity in that school, he looked, right? And it's so weird because in my memory, I know he looked, even though he was like must have been seventeen, he looked at seventeen, he looked like Tosh out of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, but he passed his he passed his driving test, and immediately wrote off his mum's car, like within, like I think three minutes of oh, having passed his test what? on the way home, pulled a handbrake turn. Flipped it over into the Reen, which is a um, dialect word in Somerset for a canal. Um, he was fine. Yeah. That's the thing. He was fine. People wrote off their cars, yeah. like flipped them and were fine. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't drive. So like those people were like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Yeah. I think I was, I mean, like, and that's, I don't know, like life is expanding really, really fast during that period. Right. If you like in the, 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 the years from. Well, being as soon as you can drive a car, like suddenly, like you're not even longer bound by, um, like you know, you've got your house and the street, uh, you know, like and like your mates' houses, and that's kind of like your area. Um, suddenly it's just like all the neighboring towns and villages are all like opened up, you know, like in the you know, like the couple of guys who can drive in the group, and so that rapid like expansion of you know, it's the bit in. Grand Theft Auto when you you know like you finally get to move to like the bridge the is no city. longer out the bridge right? is no longer out right and you and suddenly you've got like and that and I think so yeah like I think that was what I was kind of like writing about and kind of like both utterly confused by and uh uh yeah but, and, and kind of but still you know like because you're kind of like being self-deprecating about it and I t- I'll take your word for it that the, the poems are not ones you look back on with kind of great pride but it does sound all does sound like you were authentically writing about your your life, right? Yeah, sure. Actually, I guess those ones, 
Yeah, don't fall in. I mean, like, I guess, like, I, I did have some, you know, some of them, I, I suppose, when I say, like, they were, like, Johnny Clark ripoffs, and it's, like, Johnny Clark does not own the A-A-A-B rhyme scheme, but it is some, but, like, I think, like, but, you know, like, I will put my hand up and say that I did pronounce certain syllables with a Mancunian accent, all right, and that's on me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, like, yeah, so I, wrote, I was writing about that, and um, I guess, like, people I knew were kind of like going clubbing for the first time and like, and there's weird like echoes. I mean, like, cause the prodigy came from like Colchester and sort of stuff like that. And it had uh, a big rave scene in like the, the, in like the, the forests and kind of like pits around the, like the town. And that's, that's all kind of dying and dead by the time that like me and my friends are sort of start old enough to go clubbing, but it's still like in the air and you know, you see sort of like traces of it and I, that, that kind of stuff was all really exciting. Yeah. And it just felt like suddenly, you're kind of writing your way into stories of like a slightly more exciting version of life than, than what you have. And uh, uh, yeah, so I was writing a lot about that. I, after the gig with John Cooper Clark, um, I ended up like in the Irish pub across the road with him afterwards. And he had like his journals with him. Uh, journals going back like 15, 20 years. He was like, oh, what do you think of this poem? And like, he shows me a poem that he wrote in rehab one time and just and honestly wants to know my opinion about like the piece and what what i think of it and uh read me like a short story about um uh, the first mate on a ship when the ship's like lost at sea and 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 it had a kind of dante quote i never died but what of life remained and it's kind of quite serious like stuff and and i felt so so honored that despite the fact that i'm like a 17 year old kid that's my first ever gig that he was uh, that immediately he saw me as just as because I was someone who had chosen to pursue the same art form as him the uh, the incredibly uh, unpopular and, uh, <laughs> and 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 sort of like bizarre form of kind of like getting on stage and kind of reading poems to rooms full of strangers that was kind of like enough for him to sort of to immediately trust me. And I left that pub and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this forever. I think that was, I thought decided like then and there that I was such a, that I felt so like honored with that, that kind of trust. And it's so stupid. It's a little moment, but it, it, you know, it, it did like affect me and, I, and actually going on and doing more sort of readings when I first then went to like the poetry cafe in London and then went out afterwards just with a bunch of people who had just happened to be on the same bill together and then we can go out and get drunk together and realizing there's immediately like a like a bond in having done something really scary and 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 that and the, the nervousness but also yeah like feeling even though with very different people from different backgrounds that there was something pulling us towards those same kinds of stages so i found that community really heartening and i think that's what made me stick to it uh, now I do a Christmas gig with uh, Johnny Clark every, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, every sort of weekend before Christmas. Also with uh, Luke Wright and uh, Martin Yule. So that for me, it is there is still like a sort of coming home moment to sort of being able to do uh, that show every year. Um, I went to university and then I um, met other like-minded writers. Um, uh, we formed a, uh, a a live event with a group of resident poets, which was called Isle 16, um, um, which was kind of 
loosely connected to the sort of creative writing department at uh, UEA. Did I say it was Norwich? I can't even remember. It was, it was in yeah, Norwich. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm connected to UEA's, loosely connected to the creative writing department. Um, and we started running regular nights there. Um, and uh, th- those those nights which were just cabaret night style of kind of like poets just coming up and reading some poems and uh a mixture of kind of like uh sort of more comedic writing and kind of more kind of dramatic writing i remember like those were the like they were the first live poetry that i'd seen that you know wasn't uh like a kids performer on you know it wasn't like michael rosen on tv or something like that or um you know maybe i had probably caught uh a, a very young um uh, a very young craig charles on wogan <laughs> right, almost yeah, certainly yeah. but like um i remember going to them and i remember i remember being like what the fuck i think like martin <laughs> newell was like the actually was probably the first headliner that i saw mm. at the at the the slightly awkwardly titled chill em out jazz cafe <laughs> That had no jazz um, <laughs> at the uh, at UEA, but um, but what actually was you know I, I remember seeing those gigs and reading like the anthologies that were put together of like R sixteen stuff and um, and it really be, and it being genuinely eclectic and I don't I think I had and I had no designs on being I knew I was into writing no designs on being a performance part at that stage didn't even really know it was a thing and can you just um, just for the benefit of people listening, um, just talk a bit about the origin of the name R16, because I think that gives such a good like indication of actually what you know people were signing up for when they turned up. And sure, uh, yeah, and this is a kind of, and, and I think actually in general, yeah, I mean, but performance poetry as a term is such an odd term anyway, right? And <laughs> has connotations of a sort of period in the nineties. Oh gosh, I can't even. I mean, like better people than me to sort of like to to talk about where that where. What the, what the genre means and comes from but it, as far as I understand it it's sort of like what was sort of like the sort of punk ranting tradition in like the 80s which was like political and kind of like quite quite angry and uh, and quite sharp sort of like distended in the 90s and got mixed up with out of work actors uh, who uh, could get an equity card uh, by effectively doing kind of like um, like gigs at like poetry nights and therefore the scene sort of changed and became more middle class people started doing stuff that was a little bit more like monologues and that all becomes a whole kind of mess of different styles and stuff that starts to come into that and then it starts to shift again as kind of like uh rap starts to influence it and stuff so then yeah it starts to become a lot more kind of influenced by like spoken word in the late 90s and i don't know where we fit into any of that (laughs) but only to say like what you would call live poetry on stage is already a mess and if somebody was to say to me hey there's a local poetry night on stand row for me shall i go to it that is not where near enough information for me to make that kind of judgment i'd be like no you should look google who's on the bill and see if you like them because that could be anything from rhyming bad rhyming stand-up to i don't know what it could be prop comedy yeah i've seen i've seen i've seen multiple performance poets and some of them i very much enjoyed i'm not maligning it but yeah. that has been largely prop comedy with some small poems around it yeah you don't see kind of like uh like performance art well you do still see people billing performance art but like 
it's yeah, but that's all mixed in with it now. It's just it means it's it means it's just the bin marked other. That's basically put it all in there and root around and see what you find in it. And it's it, it this meeting place between lots of different genres. Um, the name R sixteen, I all sixteen, uh, came from uh, my days pushing trolleys in Sainsbury's car park in uh in Stanway, Essex. Um, uh, biggest biggest Sainsbury's in um in Europe, I think. It wasn't at the time, but I mean, it's pretty impressive. I think you can Wait, agree. It, it, sorry, it, it, sorry, it was at the time, or it wasn't at the time. It was a pretty, it was pretty big. Now it's the biggest. So what happened? Did like another Sainsbury's get wiped out? <laughs> oh, oh, we did a hit. There was there was a Sainsbury's in Stuttgart, and we we took we took it out. No, I think I just kept building on it. It was always expanding. It was huge. Wow. It was like and um, but uh, yeah. And so I worked in the car park. I loved it. One of the best jobs I ever had. Nice to be outside. Uh, and uh, got to wear big. Big waterproofs. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. Before um, Johnny Clark came and press ganged you into, <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, yeah, and 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 uh, IL sixteen was an in joke within anybody who worked in the shop, which was that if uh, a member of the public came and asked you where a thing was, you would just say, "Oh, it's it's on IL sixteen, uh, um." Because you never knew where, if, if if you didn't actually work on the shop floor, you never knew where anything was anyway, and we just thought it was funny to send everybody to exactly the same place. We we like to joke that actually, if you went to R sixteen, it would just be just rammed like wall to wall with like confused pensioners, <laughs> just you know like um, and uh, yeah, we just called it that because it was just a nice term for like a kind of our, our kind of miscellany. We didn't feel like we belonged in any of the existing nights that we were aware of. It's it, a kind of taxonomical purgatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it totally is. I like that. Uh, and it's, yeah, and, it, and and I guess it was our way of going like, okay, this is our, this is our, the, the other space where we can kind of just like, and it doesn't matter that we don't fit into. Uh, and actually, do you know what? And I think that's advice I would give to like any writer who was like feeling like they were, suddenly under the cosh of some pre-existing gatekeeper and that they couldn't kind of like write more or perform more because somebody else was running a night and that didn't fit with their kind of stuff and they didn't like it that it's just so much better to just just set one up yourself it's just always you know like I, i i can say that as difficult and unnatural as i find comparing like having to like compare events and every month knowing that I have to have like, you know, five minutes of new material, just forcing myself to get on stage is definitely one of the best things I sort of did for just overcoming writer's block and nerves and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so we ran uh, aisle 16 as a as a sort of club night for a couple of years. It's where I met you, Tim. And, and I met so many uh, like, like Norwich writers and... Um, at some point, we shifted and the residence became more like a theatre company. And we decided that we were going to make theatre and take it to the Edinburgh Fringe. And now it's like a relatively subtle shift, really. I mean, that we just started putting together a, a single hour of material. Um, the first one that we did was called uh, 
PowerPoint, and effectively it was just the same residents that would have done the local club night, but now we all wore suits and our poems were kind of like reframed as steps on a kind of a business ladder to success. It was going to we were motivational business gurus trying to offer a, a advice to uh, young delegates to help them optimize their actualization. So it was all kind of using the sort of like the weird kind of uh, the weird rhetoric of kind of business speak and trying to find something a bit poetic uh, inside that. And, and it was also, then... I guess, like it always struck me that it was also... It was also kind of like the antithesis of this, of this like going, we don't really know what this is. We don't, we're going to turn up here and everyone's welcome. And we're just doing art for like the sake of here's something you might find interesting. Here's something and like going, it's almost like taking all that like feeling of that slight feeling of shame. And that's like feeling of like, I, every time I try and explain what it is, I do. Mm. I kind of like, I'm digging my toe into the carpet and going, all right. You want slick. You want kind of like presentable. You want a a a shape and a box that this fits in. I'm gonna. This is like a business yeah. lecture. Yeah. I'm I'm a professional. You want a professional? Here's the fucking suit. Mm -hmm. Right, right, yeah. And I think that was uh, really helped us to 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 play at professionalism. Did help us kind of become more professional in general. And the shows that we did after that um, were were kind of similar. And and I guess actually at that point. We really stopped worrying about being poets. It didn't become important to us. We wouldn't even put it on our flyers. The fact that we were speaking in poetry was not a selling point. It like what we were doing was selling a story or, or like a theme, you know, like and like if someone goes like, "Well, why should I go see this show?" You say like, "Oh, well, it's about like a, it's about a government-funded boy band which has been sent around schools to try and uh, like like teach kids about literature." But like you, there's that's a story that you're kind of then you're sort of presenting, and you kind of yeah you're gonna bury the actual like the nuts and bolts of just like what genres you're operating in and kind of stuff like and that like you say like poetry as an expression of what it is you actually do is not doesn't really give any information it tells you nothing it tells you absolutely nothing so why cling to it why be an apologist for it why um you know like why stamp that on your identity and feel like you have to protect it you know like and if somebody says oh i don't like poetry why would you then go, no, here's why you're wrong. It's just like, no. Exactly. Fair, you start like enough. leaping up like some some ludicrous, like yeah. neo-chivalric. I, I will defend your honor, madam. Yeah. It's just like, oh, no, I, I, I think, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I know what how you feel you know, like that. I, I, I feel that. Like as well, often that like uh, there's a lot of poetry that I I have absolutely just doesn't speak to me, and that's fine. That's fine for it not to speak to me. There's not a problem with the poetry, and it's not a problem with me. But like it's yeah, it's a uniquely poetic thing of like dragging the huge the huge leaden monolith of poetry behind you, <laughs> and feeling that people can either accept the entire thing on block, yeah. or or they can f they can fuck off, and so that's why you get the position from some poets saying, "I think poetry should be difficult, and if you don't like it, then that's fine." Which I kind of ag kind of agree with, but then I think poetry, I kind of think it's fine not to enjoy difficult poetry, and for some pieces to be difficult. Yeah. But I don't think poetry should be difficult. I think that is one legitimate, interesting, fascinating, engaging tactic that you can take out of all of them. A yeah. poem can also be super dumb and small absolutely i mean more it's the idea of like what you know like 
rather than saying like is your poem difficult or complicated what's your point <laughs> what are you trying to get to, to get to get across you know like you know like and even if that's like a texture or a mood like what is that that you're trying to get across and then you know like and let's talk about yeah that rather than worrying about because that's a that's a job for that's a job for academics and it's a job for critics to try and break down what people are doing and say, well, it's, you know, it's 5% this and 10% that. And here's how it fits into like a matrix of kind of culture and other stuff. I let, I, you know, like, I, I think I'm, I realized relatively late on that, like, I don't have to be both author and critic. I don't have to uh, be able to, I don't have to like break down what I do and be able to split down that's going to constitute parts like i can just try and cobble together whatever it is to to make the point i want to make so can we like I'm, now there's like this final piece of the bridge before we get to the the podcast and actually like you know elements of the podcast are already there and things that you're kind of like coming up with but um when you kind of move on to doing your own theater shows because there'll be some people who've like never yeah might have never been to like a spoken word no. or live literature or even you know theater in in, in general and yet you know like <laughs> like watching all the things that you've done they're it's they're, they're you know they have a lot in common with what we've been doing now you know mm. you telling a story and it being a bit about yourself and a bit about the world sure yeah yeah i think like making a Making like a solo work, theatre work. Uh, yeah, and like... I, it's a... Uh, I, I wanted to do more stuff with video. I, and it, it's it's still really hard to work out the best way to, to approach it. Um, what I found, what I got really interested in, and this started because I, did a, I had a story I told, which was uh, the text of uh, Little Red Riding Hood by the Brothers Grimm. And I replaced every noun and verb with the word 23 places below it in a dictionary. So Little Red Riding Hood becomes liverish, red-blooded, riffraff, hoo-ha. And like, and like grandma becomes Great Britain. And and so it sounds weirdly political, despite the fact that it's, it's like completely gibberish. And I did that on stage in, in shows. And also I did it in school workshops. It, what I did what it was the line with, was it like, what was the what was the equivalent for, oh, gra oh. Oh, gra oh, oh, oh. oh grandma, what big... Oh um, yeah! Oh, you oh, Great Britain! Uh, what big earthquakes you have! Yeah. You, oh, Great Britain! Uh, uh, what big uh, eyewitnesses you eyewitnesses have! Eyewitnesses you have! <laughs> All the better to segregate you with. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 amazing. That's um that's a technique called N plus seven by um by a French uh, movement called the Oulipo, if any, it's really, it's really fun to yeah. try as just really a fun. way of, a low stress way to create. It's yep. so, so, so fun. Yeah, it really gets me back to a, an essential thing I like about writing, which is to surprise yourself. I think, you know, to be engaged in like a treatment and to, to, to turn a page of a dictionary, look down and be like, oh, wow. And then to, to and, I, and I think being able to share that, surprise with an audience and I, I think when you're doing like form based stuff ulipo based stuff the audience is kind of positioned not at like the end point of seeing this kind of finished polished thing they're kind of riding 
side saddle along with you as you're writing it. They're imagining you facing these obstacles, uh, like looking at the problem, t- you know, like looking up the dictionary, being surprised. So when they laugh at a line, you feel like you can laugh along too because you're like, I didn't, well, you know, it's just an accident, but we were yeah. both sharing this lovely, happy accident in language. And yeah, so I really like that stuff. Um, and uh, But what I found in reading that, that Little Red Riding Hood piece, even like five-year-olds, they could always hold both stories in their head at the same time. They're both simultaneously he- listening to my gibberish version and they're also hearing the original in their head because that's how they're getting the jokes. And I just thought that was fascinating that you could be hearing two stories at the same time. And so I started playing around with similar stuff, but like, well, of course, everybody knows... Um, Everybody knows like those fairy tales that we, we learn them from a young age and they're kind of, well, at least in in the UK, we're definitely going to like that. That's going to be going to be bedded in. Um, so I was looking for what are like the other equivalents to fairy tales? What are the kind of like the other things which we have completely committed to memory without even realizing that we've done it? And I thought maybe one of those things would be the opening credits of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh because it's um not necessarily the rap or yes the rap but also shot for shot the video that if you handed someone a camera in the street and said here's a camera here's a film crew here's will smith can you go away and like recreate the opening credits of the fresh prince of like you would you, you could have a pretty good stab at it i think people would i'd get love quite to close. see those vo- vox pops of like people's reactions around norwich market <laughs> especially if you had will smith there with you so he's going to sit on his throne and we're going to spin it round and then we're going to take you over to this basketball court. Uh, he's going to spin around the man's head. Uh, and, but what, so I wrote a text which I, w- I could say over the top. I've muted the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I wrote a text that you could say over the top of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and it would synchronise with what was happening on screen. So whatever was happening on screen was a metaphor for what I was talking about at that precise moment. And then I started looping it because the more times you watch something, the less that visual information is going to distract you. You know, like repetition is a great way to let things bed in deeper and deeper. In the same way that like a form in a poem does that, right? You know, it's like uh, every single loop of The Fresh Prince was like a different verse of a poem. Yeah, or like a villanelle where yeah. you have this repeated rage, rage against <laughs> the dying of the light. I really, I mean, this is what's so funny about it. It's like on some level, we're talking about it's the opening credits. So it's know. like immediately funny. Yeah. But also your right that like these things it like any repeated joke at some point it stops being funny mm. and something else is happening yeah. and then it becomes very funny again but right right like absolutely right like i and, and, and i actually this this technique of of like looping is something that like i started to use like all the time because i yeah like because and actually you can see it in like my the podcast that i, that I make now is like there are some aspects of it that are quite hypnotic because I'm effectively quite often telling the same story over and over and over with minor variations. Uh, and I think, yeah, doing that, I mean, attention spans are short, uh, particularly when listening. Like, you know, I think, you know, like you're always going to be phasing in and out. Um, and if, if, you're, if I was trying to tell really long, complicated stories, it's really easy to like miss a detail. I mean, everybody falls off the bus. You know, and then it's, you know, like, at least with something which loops, the bus is going to come around again in 30 seconds. You're going to get a chance to get back on it. And I, and I think, so using that technique, I think, yes, as you say, like, uh, some loops will be funny. 
but then like if you keep going long enough and i think this is the same with like any like olympian constraint which is that like forced to continually work with a constraint for long enough eventually you reach a point where it feels like the central like the most important kind of metaphor for your entire life is kind of buried down inside it it just you you start to see stuff in the uh, in that Rorschach blot, which feels like very very deeply kind of personal to you, and maybe that's just because you've just run out of other shit. You know, you've used up all your jokes and all your kind of funny expressions, and the only thing you have left, like in your brain and in your heart, is the really deep dark fear that you're trying not to talk about. And that's that. I mean, that really reminds me. There's two things that that's making reminding me of that idea of like taking something and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and like i spoke to uh the author lauren groff uh last month and she was talking about her new short story collection florida but also she writes poetry as well and she said and she's got like this hallucinatory quality of the realism and the the world that the characters move in is it like it's incredibly good writing um but she said that like uh a writer she knows um has a workshop exercise where basically gets the gets the workshop to stare at their pencils for 10 minutes in the silence and um she's like i i I know i know but uh you you hit a wall of boredom and then you go through that and it's really hard to fight that but like the boredom part of it you're like you'll notice stuff immediately you'll start making metaphors about it then you'll be bored and then, like, you know, they've done studies that show that uh, non-psychotic people who stare into a mirror for 20 minutes will start hallucinating. Like, so you start seeing whatever, it just becomes your scrying glass, whatever you're looking at. And yeah. I feel like so much with some of the stuff you're doing is, like, you're taking, like with the R16 things where you are finding poet the poetic in what's the least poetic thing. Camp, yeah. If poetry exists, does it exist in service stations? Yeah. If poetry exists, does it exist in, like manufactured boy bands you like gone you kind of taken this kind of canvas of like of the fresh prince of bel-air yeah. opening credits and you're going okay crystal ball yeah right it's pyromancy just stare into the flames and stare into the flames until yeah like something horrific <laughs> comes out of it that your deepest yeah i i mean but it's interesting that 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 exercise though about staring at the pencil because then you go like oh right Maybe I should stop looking at my phone whenever I get bored. Maybe if I just sat in that boredom a little bit, you know, like I would have more ideas. You'd like, come out the other side. Yeah, yeah. You'd start floridly hallucinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and just the, 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 the one other thing that it was it was reminding me of that um, that 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 repetition is is the um, is like the bit in uh, in uh, Catch Twenty Two where you've got this scene of, like, Yossarian's experience where, like, the belly gunner gets hit with a flat cannon while they're flying. And and, it, and the book just repeats that scene again and again, and we get a little bit more each time. And, yeah, like, there's a point where it's a little bit boring to read, but yeah. then you come through it into into something into something else yeah. and i and, and it's like a, it's like you're it's like you're invoking i feel like when i've watched that print, fresh prince of bel-air bit in your shows um it's like you're evoking like a trance state yeah that's how i feel as an audience member yeah you can feel the there's a you know despite the fact i'm kind of playing i mean i'm playing very like 
I'm playing like a kind of just a solid tone music behind yeah, it as well, like that, which doesn't that, help. That slowly and that each with each verse like rises slightly, slightly rises, yeah, which is slightly creepy. But even that, well, I notice when I get to like loop seven, like the feeling of the room starts to change. I think people start to shift where you're just like, I think once you hit seven, people are like, this could just go on forever. Like, like the entire show could just be this. And like, that, that's actually quite very close to the end. But yeah, I, I, I think... And people start to see stuff inside it. What's the nice thing about it? So that entire show is is full of that looping technique. Uh, and it, it all comes from the same videotape, which I found in my loft, uh, which uh, I originally like constructed with my, my granddad back when I was a little kid. Um, and so, yeah, the entire show is me taking little sections of that tape, looping them, and then over time uncovering, you know, uh, stories about my granddad stories about my life little autobiographical moments that are kind of hidden inside it and I also talk about um, my own mental health which I've not really spoken about in any other form before but um, I think yeah that method of just like forcing yourself to look into the flames until something comes out and it both by making writing so impossibly fiendishly hard by saying I could only write what's synchronized with the footage it removed so many options, uh, but also the rules of that game mean that, like, if you do find something that fits, you kind of have to go with it, right? And uh, yeah, and so I, and I thought I ended up sharing stuff about grief and about depression that I would not have really, yeah, I don't, I would never have the confidence to speak about in another form. But the the rules give you a mandate to 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 to, to share, and 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 that's you, useful. They they. Yeah, it's like we we talked about like Ulipian stuff, but when me and you have worked on pieces that have got um, like a constraint, like you can only use one type of vowel mm-hmm. or um, or even rhyme schemes. Yeah. Sometimes you end up saying stuff that you didn't really mean to say, but you've been encouraged to say because of the rhyme scheme. And, and like that is bad if you're like... Um, and you're having to force a rhyme because <laughs> because like you just can't rhyme it very well you know like that's that like with prince writing his uh i want to take you i want to take you to a party on the riviere that's the west side in case you care <laughs> it's like i think you just couldn't you just needed a rhyme for riviere um it's but, a passive aggressive yeah, yeah. of course i care yeah it's like i want to know um <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, it's like sometimes you're asked to write stuff that you wouldn't normally, and it forces you out of your normal, like the easy rut and the yeah. route that you your brain, the channels your brain has already set up for you to just flow down. Absolutely, and that's you know like now like there is the pre stage to writing now for me, which is constructing the game. You know, like is is making making the, the rules, setting that stuff up. And of course, rules can be broken. And the idea is not to then like, you know, like if if the rules, if you get halfway through following a set of rules and you're like, I just thought a much better story I could tell. I'm not going to go, no, nope. <laughs> 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 I have to stick to the, no, just like, just break it, you know, like, but, um, but yeah, that, that method of basically, and, and most of the episodes of, um, uh, the imaginary advice podcast operate in the, in the same way, but like, they're not, necessarily poems or stories or essays they tend to be a little bit of a a mix of all three but usually it starts off with me just setting myself uh, a homework assignment um you know so i this is so that's i'd love to 
sort of break this down a little bit and drill into this. Mm. Um, I want to just ask you about, you said the first part of writing is establishing or discovering, or I can't remember the exact word you used, finding the game. Mm. Um, what, does, what, does that, what does that look like? How do, how do you um, and how does someone like fi- find 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 the game how do you know when you've like do you sit i mean because i'm presuming you don't sit down and go what game can i imagine today yeah. that it's a it, this it's a bit more abstract than that and i'm wondering how you know when you've got a game yeah yeah I, I, okay so it's a good question and i don't know uh i think uh i, I could tell you about the one i'm working on yeah, like right I was now say like if there's an example I'm in the middle of, of one. one that you worked yeah with, that'd be great well this is like right now i uh i found uh Maybe this. I'll, I'll tell you this because it's the one that I haven't finished yet, and so at least it's sort of like maybe the problems I'm experiencing are the are, are relevant. In in coding, this is called rubber ducking, where um if you're not sure if you if you're trying to debug a piece of software and you can't work out how to do it, um you have you pick up a rubber duck and try to explain the problem to a rubber duck, and um, often in that process you will discover the the answer. So I'll be your rubber duck. Awesome, awesome. When I when I have to do the podcast on my own. Uh, I uh, I prop up a picture of uh, one of my Simpsons DVDs, and uh, you, usually it's um, 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 oh, what's the name of uh, the bus driver? Uh, the 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 name- Otto. Yeah, Otto. Say, bus I'm so glad you broke that because I know oh every time gosh. I can't remember a name, it's everyone listening is like, it. as someone I saw someone tweet yesterday, um, when two people talking on a podcast can't rem- remember the name of someone uh, a famous person that you can that's the closest feeling to what it must be like being a ghost <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I yeah so like I, I I find propping up Otto on, on, on the side and talking to him can get me through similar kind of problems but you can be my Otto okay cool thank you um, so I found a, a tape uh, it, it, which um, I was going through tapes. I was originally I wanted to make an episode about uh, uh, when I was at university. I was one third of a, uh, a drum and bass radio show, uh, which was broadcast out of uh, the the university. Um, and uh, I was originally looking for like tapes of that show, and I didn't quite know what I wanted to talk about. That was going to be more of a kind of more of a kind of journalistic piece of me just like listening back to those recordings and having sort of reflections on it but while I was looking through that I found a recording uh, I made from my house uh, no my grandma's house uh, which was me age four talking into a microphone and like telling stories Uh, and I'm doing like uh, and I sing songs in between I I sing like uh, I must have. My dad must have been playing a lot of the undertones around then, because like I sing, I sing teenage kicks a couple of times, which is a bit weird. Uh, in between, like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and, uh, and just random scatting. That, that's my three kind of like avenues of uh, 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 of song. Oh wow! All human life is there. really all there, and I, and I tell her, and I can tell a couple of stories on on the tape as well. And my idea was, I saw is to like take one of the story structures, uh, the t- take the story which I told on the show play it to the listener, um, break it down a little bit in the recording. So I'm kind of drawing attention to like how this story has been constructed. And it's been constructed slightly weirdly because obviously I'm improvising it and I'm four. And so it, it has a weird sort of 
angle to it. I set up a lot of stuff. The whole story is loose ends. It's me just setting stuff up and then Chekhov forgetting. Is like rotating in his grave. <laughs> yeah, like I, I set up a whole... I have a premonition that I'm going to be killed by a robot called Boxman that I just completely... I, I totally forget about in the second half of the, the, the story. I just go and end up on a train know. for the teddy bears. That's kind of like... But that's that's a bit like... That's a bit like at the beginning of Punch Drunk Love, where like a where like a, a U-Haul like has a blowout and skids along the road, and then that doesn't, doesn't come back at all. No, it doesn't doesn't matter. It just sets up a sense of of deep unease yeah, for the rest of the movie, and that's why I, I'm like maybe I maybe I maybe I was onto something when I was when I was creating a story like that when I was four, and I've forgotten because I'm too obsessed now with with kind of you know hero's journey rules and kind of like making sure that things kind of like pay off and that um and that story feels satisfying and so my idea was just like i'm just going to take the beats of the of that story and i'm going to retell a version of it um you know like and i can and i don't have to keep set so then i give myself extra rules i say like uh you know i can change any setting you know like i i can change the characters but it's just the moments where the story kind of like shifts, you need to feel those same shifts. And so now, yeah, I'm kind of like writing through that. But um, I get, but you know, this is still me, you know, I'm still doing, this is still Ross's Marvelous Medicine. It is still just like taking something existing and then just like writing uh, over the top of it. Um, and I, I, sometimes I'm doing that with an existing story of mine. Sometimes I'm trying to take, you know, like a piece of music and I'm trying to write a story over the top so the story matches the the shift in the music. I'm always really reluctant when I'm talking. When there's some, my dad asks me often, "What are you working on at the moment?" Mm. and and then acts a little bit not hurt, but kind of like, "Oh well, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine." And it's not that I don't want to talk to him about what I'm doing. I'm not being like. What do you do? To, what? How was school today? Fine. I'm not. It's not that. It's not quite that. But it's that feeling of like having to sort of come up with a meta theory of why I'm doing something. That that, that there is, it, it, and it's so so. When I talked, spoke to Helen Macdonald, who wrote H's for Hawk, about her writing, she was able. It was like one of the first times someone sort of owned the fact that when she gets the page. There is still, there's kind of like a mystery. There's like a black box where all the stuff she's researched and all the stuff she's gone, I need, no, I need to go and find out about this. She's just like gone off to um, the island of Midway uh, to go and do a hand count of, um, of albatrosses. And she knows she's going to write something about the end of the world mm. because the island's going to be, uh, sink under the sea pretty soon um she knows albatrosses have got you know the ancient rhyme of the ancient mariner she knows she's getting older um she feels like the world's in a bad place doesn't hasn't got like a shape for the book is just no. taking all that and then feeding it yeah. into this kind of like little room and so it's, it's, re- it's so you but you you initially you go out and you go i know that you're kind of like truffle hunting or do, being a detectorist on the beach. You go, I know there might be something here. I'm going to go and start like having a little comb through this and see what comes to mind. Yeah. And like, yeah, right. I, I like that way of thinking about it. Like it's, yeah, like you're, you're not, you're, 
you're packing for a holiday. Maybe you're packing for several holidays, right? You know, I'm, I'm, but you're you're taking all this kind of like stuff with you. And yeah, I guess that's, that's a nice way of thinking about because when I'm thinking about this story, on one level, I'm thinking about like the just just the the, the narrative the, the the narrative challenges of writing something that um that that, that has the same kind of angular shape to it. And that's almost, I know that I have to approach that a little bit like I'm gluing together different stories. And I want those stories to feel actually quite different. I want them to have their own little genre feel to them. So when it suddenly jars and moves off in a different direction, the listener's going to feel that as well. And you're going to know that like I'm, I've taken like a weird like left turn. And those things are all like aesthetic choices, really. And that's, that's more just like the tone of the music. But... You know, I also want people to be thinking about well, what does it mean to be for a you know like a, a like a thirty eight year old man to be retelling a story that he first told when he was four, and like how that feels to be listening back to a recording that you did so long ago, uh, to be listening to something. I will never ever record a radio program and experience the sheer joy of creation that I felt when I was recording when I was four. There's something so, like, like inherently... Do you honestly think that? Do you think that that is... Do you think that that is the sort of Faustian pact that you've <laughs> made? Or Mark, that, do, you, do you think that create creativity is, like, the, at the cost of craft? Oh, no, I, I love making imaginary advice. I really do. It's my most fun thing that I've ever done. And the freedom... And, and I feel that, like... Of all the things that I've done as an adult, making imaginary advice is the closest I've got to doing what I was doing when I was four. So it's not, a, so I've not been moving constantly in a straight line away from that feeling of just like unbridled joy. You can come back around to it. I'm just saying I won't ever get back to just precise that moment of just uh, just the, the freedom of not caring what comes out of my mouth. It's gibberish. I didn't even know how, I, I, you can hear me on the tape calling for my grandma to stop the tape because I couldn't I didn't even know how to push any of the buttons I never ever rewound any of those tapes and listened back to it because it wasn't about creating something to hold on to and to play back to it was just about the sheer act of just like enjoying talking <laughs> but um but that but there was something I but I do remember the feeling of just like how great it was to just sit there and kind of record that and maybe that's a false memory maybe it's like but that's something to aspire to I, it, it's to aspire to, to get back to the point of just not knowing where you're going and being surprised where you end up. I know not all writers feel that way. You know, like I, but for me, um, I think the reason why that's a goal is how, well, I don't know. I just, I, I always liked that quote and I don't know even who said it. I think it might, it might be like Billy Collins or maybe I've just heard Billy Collins like quoting it of like, you know, a, a poem tries to escape its own subject matter. And I, and I kind of always like, I like the idea that you know where the door is, you know where you're starting and but once you kind of step through that door you're just f grabbing this i'm mixing my metaphors terribly you grab a thread you just like pull it and pull it and pull it and you kind of see where that kind of takes you and like um if you know like if, if if the audience is with you on that on that journey it can be it can be really sort of thrilling to see just like what bizarre place you kind of you you end up and i and i like that and maybe that is because writing for me does have this weird um like this weird like sympathetic comparison to channeling 
you know, like that, that I am kind of using it to just like root around in the back of my head and to see what what comes out. And it gives you, and it, like you've said, it gave it sometimes those, sometimes those games are like a kind of persona that you can that you can don and they're kind of well they work a bit like the way a mask is a disguise but what's the first thing you do when you put on a mask yeah, is, is is do all the things that you want to do that you, you couldn't do when people were looking at you yeah, right you look around <laughs> that, you, you, and nothing's changed yeah. like from your perspective and that's it feels like each of these things is is like they're like a you go okay so what if i'm trying to put what if i'm trying to put together this my podcast and now i'm four yeah like how do i how do how does that change now i'm the four-year-old is like my art consultant on this piece and they get the choice of like they get to make all the story choices yeah i mean and and that's to me like that's what's so interesting and, and and like just these ideas are so when you hear them when you know everything from your kind of like uh your ai like writing like the Seinfeld uh, thing where you've got an AI writing a stand-up routine to their sort of like actually heartbreaking uh, and increasingly surreal monologue of a of, of a of a wasted spannered guy um, bothering the DJ like <laughs> you, you you these characters or these moments just so like the, the the thing I just wanted to get get to is like you're often like taking two really familiar tropes, yeah, and you're just like bringing them together to make a third or just positioning them close to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good. It's, I think that's a good way of looking at it. That um, you know, and it, okay, so you know, we were talking about the Fresh Prince before, and then realizing how like absurd it is to be you know like talking about the Fresh Prince as a kind of poetic form, but you know like you I, but like there is something to be said for taking something which is like has sort of like become a sort of modern folk myth something which is already like part of our kind of like extended stuff the whole high culture low culture stuff is just nonsense i don't see that making any difference it's a lot easier if you were starting off with something which was already really sad you know like and kind of like a, a kind of like a very very tender um a uh, beautiful delicate artwork you know like about human sorrow and then you're trying to like riff on that it's like well you're only you, you're only going to come across like facile and stupid trying to like stand on that right you know like it's and you certainly can't double down on that and you know like because then you're 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 standing on its shoulders to achieve something that you haven't earned yourself but some of the most uh you know, I don't know. I, I think some of the most kind of sad, uh, like, I think if you if you if you start from something which is like ridiculous, the only way it can go is more personal and more beautiful. I think if you kind of stick with it, you know, like, and so, yeah, I like, I like the idea of taking these kind of shortcuts. The audience already is familiar with, like, you know, like these these basic kind of concepts. Whether it's the you know, like for the for my piece, which is set in like a nightclub, yeah, you're familiar maybe with um, um, you've probably maybe even done it yourself, which is yeah, talk, try the... to talk to a DJ in the middle of a set. That's what that's what's that's what's hard about that one, and yet so poignant is like I'm listening to it and going, oh, I think I might have been this yeah. guy at least once. <laughs> 
And uh, I remember, and I remember this last night, because I did it on stage last night. Uh, and I was like, oh, I once tried to tell a DJ uh, the entire plot of the Blair Witch Project while he was, <laughs> while he was mixing. <laughs> Just, what was, I think it had come out last week and I was keen wow. to share. Uh, um, and I, but yeah, so I think like, so on one side you've got that as a familiar skit and then you've got like the, and then you've got like the love soliloquy, you know, someone's down below, someone else is up above. Yeah. So you've got, basically you've got like a Roman and Juliet. And then if there's a third thing, I think it's just um, when people are like really off their face, how when their language mashes together, it, you know, like it starts to feel like weird experimental poetry, you know, like, and, and just like, um, yeah. And, and so trying to kind of like try and get the, the, the texture of someone who thinks they're talking complete sense but like but like all the all the languages can like scrambled underneath or they keep forgetting where they are and and and, and you know like yeah those are from this it's yeah it's it's it, they're all like that's a really familiar setting but this is i mean I, what i love about working in radio tim and it's just so you know like is the freedom of space you know like the idea of just like um I can actually be telling two stories in two different time periods happening at the same time. And all you have to do is like EQ those two different time periods, slightly different. Whether, I mean, I don't mean like slightly panned or just like you just change, like you drop the bass out of one and the mind can just pick it apart. You Bring know in a bit of jaunty harpsichord underneath <laughs> one and the kind of like sound effect of the <laughs> scribble of a, uh, of a quill. It's you know like li- um, li- little bits yeah, of no. uh of, of it, it's actually like you know I mean I'm I could be pretty heavy handed but actually like a pr- you know like a light touch of like sound design can you know like can be very yeah can and actually I've you know I can I can take like a story where it doesn't really work on the page at all and I can really save it in the edit and sometimes that is like changing lines around and I'm still like restructuring it once I've recorded it and sometimes it's just yeah realizing that a bit of foley here just like a, a like a like a like a just a yeah like a like a shift here and there can suddenly um create a, several different different spaces uh within that, the work that's the thing i think like having it's something that's really difficult to replicate on the page it's certainly very difficult in fiction mm. to replicate the pauses and the gaps where you just leave that what has said been said to resonate which sounds like when i say it like that it sounds pretentious but actually in the same way that when you tell a joke on stage you don't immediately like run through the audience's laughter into the beginning of the next anecdote right yeah. you let them laugh yeah and you maybe laugh with them right and which is why like actually i well i because i script my podcast i script what i say i, I try to i over time i think i've got better at writing scripts that look on the page like you know and 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 sound like i sound when i'm talking by which i mean you know like yeah you trail off you don't finish a sentence you start again um you kind of insert a new sentence in the middle of one you're already saying and uh but i uh the way we look on the pages is like a poem i use carriage returns for any extra half a second of a pause you know like I, i always carriage return that 
And so they, d- despite the fact they're meant to sound like my natural dialogue, yeah, they all run kind of jagged down the down the left margin. And now you actually now you say that I'm thinking of writers like B. S. Johnson who wrote like House Mother Normal, who lays out books like prose like poetry like mm. House Mother Normal is like a series of monologues from different um patients in old people's home and it's laid out in such a way that uh on the page that um you only see the inside of one person's head at a time mm. but when you go to the next bit it repeats the previous scene and all the gaps of the next person uh the next person's thoughts and dialogue and slowly you piece it together what's happening um and as the book goes on um the mental capacity and the number of senses that the person that the person you're looking at has got goes down and down until there's like a section that is mostly blank pages. Mm. Uh, oh my god! Like it's yeah, it's like it's like simultaneously very brutal mm. and has that kind of like 1970s hey hey literature. Think you can handle this? <laughs> and there's like, a, there's 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 a the couple of your so- granddad's novel. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's just like watch this person have sex and do poo. And <laughs> um, so there's a bit, there's a couple of bits that feel slightly juvenile. Um, but then there's, but then the funny bits make you sort of slightly let down your guard, like you're talking yeah. about, that let the kind of the difficult stuff in. Um, mm. I just, um, I think some, something that I wanted to kind of like maybe to bring things to a kind of conclusion was just uh in what have you found and and and, and this is like where i take all this stuff what i'm basically saying russ is i want to take all this amazing craft that you've worked years and years for and how can we like ruthlessly strip mine it <laughs> to get the good stuff out so we don't have to go through that like what are the things that you found that like work for you that worked for other people when you've taught uh you know creative writing workshops what are things that seem to like consistently like bring words out on the page i guess is what i'm getting at sure sure um i'll I'll work out as i go um but uh I, i guess i could say uh I mean, like, something that I do. I mean, like, you should bear in mind that when I teach uh, creative writing workshops, I'm usually working with, like, quite young kids. But there is, like, one exercise that I do pretty much no matter what age the student is. And it's a really simple exercise, which is just... Uh, it's a dictionary exercise, really. It's it's where I get people to describe the moon. Uh, I'm and, so uh, glad you brought this one up. Really. Yeah. It's, well, it's quite good. So- I, I should have just asked you about that directly instead of saying, Ross, I want you to, like... I'm gonna send you an exercise <laughs> mentally, like a like like a Zena card, and I want I want you to intuit it. <laughs> and if you get the wrong one, I'll send a little electric shock. Um, by the way, of kind of like various non-verbal indications of boredom until you. To, uh, I'm glad you talked about that because it's like my one of my favourite exercises that you've um, shown me. Cool, man. I'm so pleased. Well, it's uh, so basically, um, uh, I uh, I ask students to write. Uh, 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 the uh, the moon is an uh adjective noun, right? It's usually adjective noun. It's usually like it doesn't have to be quite like like that way around. Um, and then uh, they fill in the the adjective and the noun by opening a dictionary on a random page, 
Uh, and then once they've opened it on a random page, they're allowed to pick any word from that page. They don't have to kind of just like, it's not about pure chance. You you know you, you take like a random selection by opening a book on a random page and then you try and see something that, that seems to suit the best. And then you repeat it again on a new page and then you keep going like that and kind of produce like a, uh, a big list of them. And so there's a couple of things that I really like about exercise. Uh, one is that um, it encourages you to treat like your environment as an extension of your imagination, you know, like, oh, and I think that's quite useful, like not feeling like it has to come from like inside you that you have that the word needs to be like, like, like right there. Um, whatever words are already knocking about your head are knocking about your head because there's things that you've already seen somewhere probably over the course of that day, like you don't have to worry about original thought in, in that way. Just opening a book and just letting a random image on that page jump jump off is a great way. It's a great way to introduce chance and accident into your work. Uh, and and, and, I, and like I think one of the whole reasons why I like using rules in the first place is because, yeah, rules disrupt our thought patterns. They just stop us from staying in those same sort of like ruts, which we're kind of like we're used to. It's just ways of taking us off in uh, in a different direction and um and and just letting us see where where that leads um so yeah i like I like that exercise a lot. I mean, I, I... Can you give some examples of what kind of things people... Oh, yeah, I love, I love, like... Uh, um, and, like, your know, students come up with fantastic ones all the time. Oh, I remember one was, oh. like, the moon is an Aztec supermarket. Uh, and, like, I remember reading that, and it's been like, yeah. I mean, I don't know why I like that, but it's just... It's I know, just... this is the thing. It's, like, every time I've... And I've, I've, I've done that exercise with adults as well, and it does work with all ages. And the thing that's... Um, I, I do slightly feel sometimes... Because I I sometimes worry that I'm coming across, like, like a stoner in the kitchen at the party, right? <laughs> and just, like, just like... yeah. But actually, and then, you, and then I look around and I see the effect it has on the group, and it's, like... That is that thing you said about like un- understanding that you're you can use your environment as an extension of your imagination. That is fucking radical, mm. uh, and that is a that's a revelation to some people. And you know, I've, yeah, the moon is a moist orphan, mm. <laughs> and the fact that that came out, and the, what happens is invariably they've just like just knocked stuff together, yeah. and then and done it almost. You know, they've just done it on, on and then they see the reaction. Then they see other people go, hmm. And they realise that either the other people, they've left some space that other people can flow in with their interpretation and habit. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily bullshitting or pretentiousness to leave the reader some space yeah. or some ambiguity or just some oddness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lab. You're just putting stuff down and like, yeah, people will just like flow into that space. The moon is a shamrock of petrol. You know, like, and it's just, and, and like, and... And like, and actually, and what I love saying to, to students is going like, imagine you're writing a story, and that's like the opening line. It was like the moon that night was a shamrock of petrol. Imagine now the camera, like panning down from that moon. What is the scene going on, like beneath that that that, that moon? And because and it's just going to give you like a flavour, it's going to give you a feeling, and it's going to give you tension. Because like one of the sort of the ways I try to encourage them in the, in the exercise is to put words side by side that they've never seen side by side before. And like this is this is why the technique 
like uh has like a, there's a version of it done by uh alan ginsburg where he calls it um the eyeball kick because he was looking at a painting by Cezanne one day and he was like, oh, all these colours are all wrong. They're all horrible. But, like, I can't look away from it. There is something disgusting about this painting and yet, like, I cannot, like, tear my eyes from it. It is, it is assaulting me. And, 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 I, and, I, and it's, and it's inc- what an incredible feeling. And, I, and, like, that's where he, you know, like, in Howl, and he puts words like hydrogen jukebox, like, by, side by side. And so, like, that's, like, his version of it, but... There's just, yeah, there's a kind of punky energy to just, like, putting that side by side and just letting that alchemical reaction kind of happen. And, of course, yeah, and, like, when you create a a, a smash like that, yeah, it creates this little vacuum, kind of comes out of it, and you can kind of fill that with whatever you want. And it's, um, and then what I like about that is because I think for young people also, it encourages them to maybe think that maybe sometimes poets the poet who wrote the poem doesn't have the answer, you know, like that they, they felt like that was the right line to use on a subconscious level. That was what the line should be. But they could, if you ask them to say, well, why did you put, pick these words? They, they, they would not be able to actually tell you. That's exactly, we're back to that mystery again. And it's why I'm sort of very conscious when I do like, when I do the show, when I talk to people, mm. that I, part of me is, is trying to pin the puddle of wine to the table, you know, and mm. like say, and say, ex, expl, explain yourself, explain yourself. And, uh, and, and I get, I sort of like part of me gets uh, used to get, used to get very annoyed if someone was evasive, what, mm. what I felt was evasive, which would be the answer. Sometimes I don't know. Mm. Sometimes I'm just pulling stuff you know, I'm reaching up into the kind of like darkness above me and I'm pulling on a rope and I'm seeing whether like a bell rings or like a corpse falls down. And that, and I didn't accept that, but it's it's not pretentious. That's the thing is it's liberating to be yeah. able to go, fuck knows, but like, it's not, it's actually not always my job to know what this exactly means. Right. Yeah, and like, and we've all read books, I like where suddenly you get to a certain point, and you just have to like, I have to stop interrogating every line, and I have to just like step into like the current of this book and let it kind of carry me along. Uh, you know, like aware because if I keep if every single line, I'm just like gonna keep going. What? No, you know, read it again and again and again. It's just like, uh, like. I really like uh, Ian Sinclair's writing, but like he's a classic example where like I think the first time I tried to read like Downriver, I was just, I I, I was like interrogating it too much. I was like, stop wriggling. Like, like <laughs> what is, what do you mean? And, and actually like, that's not the way to read like, like Downriver. Like you, you, the book's title maybe would suggest that like you let yourself flow. Let you, you like, just go get into the stream and like, let it kind of like move past you and you know like and just take the feeling of it as it's kind of coming through i don't know oh, does that sound bad does no, it sound like i'm saying no, i mean like, ian sinclair is like I, I love that book still and, 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 and i found a, a way to kind of enjoy it but i was just yeah I, I i was i was trying to wade upstream no i think i think it's i think it's i think it's a, a beautiful way of talking about it and something that's hardly ever talked about which is this idea that there are diff- there are ways of reading it's mm. when i talk to genre writers i really feel often that genre is a set of spectacles that you put on as a reader mm. to like decode a text and it's why like when i wrote the honors um so many people started reading that book with their historical fiction spectacles on and then there comes a bit in the book and they 
would some some people enjoyed the switch but some people were very confused um angry or or performed these like tiny like repairs i think of them as like where they make it the genre that they were expecting it to Mm. be they perform these little subconscious mental repairs in the same way that readers perform repairs all the time to make a character straighter than they are whiter than they are um well, uh, heter than they are like all those kind of all these things we're constantly performing uh repairs we've talked about me and you've talked about like bartlett's war of the ghosts yeah. like this kind of like idea of like cultural memory and how you could tell a story and you do like telephone you pass it down chinese whispers one person to the next person and so on and that story as it's passed between people will sound more and more like what cultural expectations those people have yeah yeah all the details that don't fit into your kind of like yeah your your cultural societal norms get turned the volume gets turned down on those and yeah it becomes a lot more relate you relatable in your in, in your sense right yeah and yeah and, and so things yeah things shift over, over time towards you and, yeah. That, and and yeah yeah and that's a uh, Right, so any any act of reading, you know, like is is, is you know, like yeah, is an act of covering up some parts, you know, like as as you read through. Sure, and of course you have to do that a little bit because you're trying to. That's what interpretation is: is you're you're picking lenses. But this is, I guess, this is what I think. You know, anyone listening, you go and listen to, uh, uh, go and listen to uh, imaginary advice because. I just think the reason why people say go listen to it, I don't want to explain too much about what it is or what to expect. Apart from the fact that there's huge diversity in the way that you approach things and the games that you're playing, is just that I don't want to rob people of the experience I have of listening to it, which is that each episode I listen to, I've got whatever shit that I'm going through that day that I am bringing to those spaces that I'm bringing to that story and podcasting is such a an intimate medium that it allows you to plant the faces of people you've seen that day or people you're thinking about onto your onto characters that are in the story you know yeah no absolutely I mean that's a you know like that's a and like I guess I'm sort of experiencing that now I, I the difference between moving from doing like a live performance to radio yeah it is like I, I like that's been a yeah like it's kind of letting go of the reins and kind of realizing that yeah these spaces are uh, are not m- mine you, you set up the game but uh you know someone else plays it there's a great oh who is it um uh he used to be the poetry editor of the new yorker uh yep. paul Muldoon. okay paul Muldoon has a, a, a like a great description of a poem where he describes it as a, a house party where the host has already left through the bathroom window. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I like, I like that. I, I like, I like that a lot. Yeah. Awesome. So, Ross, if people would like to find you online, 
um not like for you, like in your personal life i just mean uh professionally you and your work jokes on um, them i don't have a personal life yeah, so. yeah. i was gonna say and, he's, and given given how much of you have like given to people today it's be a pretty, pretty bit of a snub if they don't but um if they want to find you and your podcast and stuff you do where can they do that okay well i um so if you go to imaginaryadvice.com that's the website which has uh the links to the podcast is hosted on soundcloud but you can find it also through subscribing to apple Podcasts and all the regular places and of course i will stick all links to this in the show notes so people can just click them as well Thanks, on dude. my website um and uh just yeah thank you very very much i've really enjoyed talking with you Russ. Yeah, that's, so amazing. that's amazing thank you so much. interesting uh thank you so much and everybody listening uh yeah go and go and uh check out the podcast because um i think you're just gonna have a great time mm-hmm. and gonna become a subscriber yourself and um good luck with your writing this week, and I shall see you next time.